despite how many times Jordan Peterson tells us. Marxism equals Leninism equals Stalinism equals communism, all the same thing. So worker votes, one worker vote is worth lots of peasant votes, is there's this argument that World War II saves the Soviet Union. If you take the socialism to the very left, it will always be totalitarian. And Lenin's like, well, come on, don't be silly. Please take me back to Russia in 1916 in terms of socially and economically. What was the situation like? Um, yeah, 1916 is really hard to separate. I think 1916 in Russia from the fact that Russia is at war. Mm. And I mean, World War I being the kind of, this is the, a total war, right? And it's the way that it's described as a total war and it's described as a total war because uh, for the countries involved, for most of them, if not all of them, their um, entire domestic situation becomes reoriented toward war as well. And I think Russia is no exception. And so I thought a little bit about, about this uh, question in terms of the way that I teach uh, 1916. Um, and one of the big issues, I think, for the regime is that the czarist regime itself has such a deep distrust of private initiative and citizens' initiatives that one of the things I think really worked against uh, the czarist army was the refusal to openly accept and to expand the degree to which civilians, uh, investors, Russian entrepreneurs had been participating in the war effort. Um, and they sort of undermine that participation and by doing that undermine themselves and end up, I think, more and more isolated in terms of support from just about every part of the population. And so even the people you think w who would have supported the, a traditional monarchy no longer supported a traditional because monarchy. Of the war specifically. The war, I think things were going in, the in that direction. To my mind, the war, the First World War determines the timing of the revolution, but I don't... I, what if history is not something I, I like to do? So in a sense, like, well, if there had no been no First World War, would there have been a Russian Revolution? I don't know, mm. right? But that's certainly the timing of the Russian Revolution. The war is a, a very important part of the timing. Right. Okay. And then when we take, we go outside of Russia to the world, what stage socialism that came to Russia in 19... Before, but the revolution happened in 1917. Uh, what is, what's the state of the socialism was like in the rest of the, the world? Yeah, and that's, I didn't answer the second part of your first question, which maybe I'll talk about and then flip to, yeah. the, um, to the question of, of international socialism, because you were asking what was happening socially yeah. yes. at home. Yes, correct. And uh, the way I just was looking over this for my Imperial Russia class, um, and the way that I talk about 1917 and 1905 in terms of the revolution is that it wasn't one revolution. There were many, many revolutions. And what strikes me about Russia socially is fragmentation, that this is a society that has, there's so many different groups that have dreams and goals for the future, but they're not the same dreams and goals. So if you look at what the peasantry wants in terms of political change, it's not the same as what the working class wants. It's not the same as what the cadet party wants, what the, not the same as what the socialist revolutionaries want necessarily, although their alignment with the peasantry is fairly good for the majority of the party, not necessarily the far, like the far radical terrorist wing 
Um, it's not the same, though, as what the Bolsheviks want or the Mensheviks or constitutionalists. Mm-hmm. or And so it's so divided mm-hmm. in my mind mm-hmm. that that is going to be a massive problem for the new regime going forward. And, and the whole division, the monarchy couldn't come up with the key to connect all these little pieces and fragments. No, I don't think they could. And I think that the decisions that they had been making through the course of the 19th century backs them into a corner, that they're further and further isolated uh, from the population. So, um, for example, well, I mean, in some ways, it's kind of tragic that the ultimate reforming czar is assassinated, right? So Alexander II is assassinated. And what happens then is that his successors, his son and his grandson, are, are think, well, what, this is what happens when you try to reform. Everything gets out of control, right? Uh, again, what if, I don't know, if they had been reformers, if they had continued on a path of reform, if they had been able to move toward constitutionalism, could there have been a softer transition? Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, so that's, I think, some of the mistakes are the sort of reactionary response to the death of Alexander II, although I absolutely understand why they responded that way. To the question of international yes, socialism. The international, what, at what point? Because you just said it, right, the multiple fragments. And that's, mm-hmm. what, that's very interesting for me because I never thought that the, the, the whole country was divided into multiple, multiple little fragments. So what point was socialism in the world? And then I think a follow-up question to that will be why it was able to connect all these fragments. And, and that's a, I think that's a really good question, too, because um, when we talk about also in terms of fragmentation, I haven't even started to talk about national identity, ethnicity, religious, because, you, as you know, right, this yeah. country has so many languages, so many faiths mm-hmm. that that's another. And it's so regionally diverse that the, all of those are also reasons for uh, fragmentation and for the fact that it's, it's, it's difficult to unite uh, this country to, for a common goal. And I don't think that actually that can happen until World War II. I mean, in some ways, there's this argument that World War II saves the Soviet Union because 27 million people, 25 million, it's hard again. We don't have specific numbers, right? But that it's that many million people had to die for something, right? And I think that that gives socialism or the Soviet identity a new, a new kind of lease on life that mm-hmm. had been almost exhausted by the purges before the Second World War. But that doesn't answer the question about international socialism, yes. which is, I don't know a lot of details about the socialist movements in other countries. Yes. I know in 1918, there's, there's a fairly serious uh, socialist revolution in Germany, uh, so that there are, and we know that Marx and Engels had you know, wide communities of socialists. We know that the Russian socialists had been in touch with them. Mm-hmm. We know that Marx kicked Bakunin out of the, the Communist Party meetings yeah. in, in London. Um, so, I mean, the R- Russians are certainly connected to the international socialist movement. A lot of Russian revolutionaries, uh, a lot of the re- well, Russian political parties were formed abroad because political parties weren't legal until 1905, mm-hmm. right? So um, I think that the Russian revolutionaries are connected to uh, international socialism. But socialism is also fragmented, right? So you've got Bolsheviks, you've got Mensheviks, you've got left SRs, you've got SRs, you've got, you know, you've got the Bund. So you have all these different socialist groups. 
Was there the well. same ideology that was, that's another question that I kind of have, mm -hmm. is that you're saying that they're, they're very fragmented, right? Even the socialism as well. Yeah. So what's then kind of the definition? That's the, the, the what's the idea, if it's, so, it's, if it's so fragmented, what the idea that got to Russia? Right. And uh, were there any other ideas of the socialism that didn't? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think um, I always react against the kind of blanket statement that socialism in Russia is just borrowed from the West and imposed on this country that didn't have, you know, these socialist tendencies, and which makes absolutely no sense to me because I think the socialist revolutionaries in many ways are a very Russian party. Like their socialism is oriented around the countryside and it's oriented around the peasantry. And uh, Herzen has a concept of Russian socialism that he talks about. Um, I think someone like um, Tukhachev, I think Lenin borrows this idea of a revolutionary vanguard from Tukhachev. So to my mind, there's, of course, Marx and Engels are Western. Of course, Bolsheviks and Mensheviks consider themselves Marxists uh, and borrow from Marx and Engels. But at the same time, I think that all the socialisms in Russia are very informed by Russian intellectual thought, Russian intellectual tradition, and Russian conditions. So it's kind of like its own. That's what you... To my mind, to, yeah. yes. yes. And what's the fundamental um, idea of the Russian socialism then? And it depends who you talk to, mm -hmm. right? So if I if, talk to you. If you talk to me. Uh, well, it depends on which of the revolutionaries you talk to, right? So if you talk to the socialist revolutionaries, right? Mm -hmm. Their, their socialism contains, I, to my mind, many aspects of Slavophilism, and not in the sort of ultranationalist sense, but in the sense of looking to the peasantry for hope for the future. So this idea, so Slavophiles looked at the peasant commune and said, there's a source for like unity and for harmony and a kind of more mystical idea about what the Russian peasant commune could do, right? Uh -huh. But the socialist revolutionaries being like sort of leftists, being secular, by and large, they look to it and say, no, well, this, you know, we can skip all those worst, the sort of most oppressive phases of socialism, of Marxism. We can skip them because we can use the Russian peasant commune as the, the center for communism, as the core, uh -huh. right? And this is a majority peasant country. So if we want to liberate this country, we want to liberate the peasantry. So if you talk to the socialist revolutionaries, their, their history goes way back to the, well, way back. It goes back to the populists in the 1870s, but back to the Slavophiles too, I think. Right. And those experiences. So if you, you talk, you get one view from them. If you talk to, you know, if you talk to left F SRs, they're like, we're direct action anarchists. Like, that's how we're going to bring this regime down. It's very different. If you talk to Mensheviks, they're going to be much more, well, look, we're Orthodox Marxists and we don't think that you can skip the phases that Marx outlined. Right. So that Russia does need to go through a bourgeois revolution. Russia does need for the proletariat to be exploited to the point where they come to their own consciousness. Right. Because if you're sort of an orthodox Marxist, you believe that consciousness, you, consciousness comes before revolution, right? The revolution comes out of your awareness of your exploitation, your sense of your class for yourself and in yourself and for yourself, right? Uh, and the change that the Bolsheviks make, the change that Lenin introduces is he's like, look, no, you Mensheviks, you'll only get as far as trade union consciousness, right? So if you have like the workers will be bought out. But they'll, the, the, the trade unions, that'll be enough for them. They'll settle for sort of basic rights and, you know, sort of what happens in the West, right? And he's like, what you need is a disciplined, small, focused, elite vanguard. And that vanguard has to fight for the revolution. 
And so for Lenin, revolution first, consciousness later, because we need the revolution now. Let's say, let's say if we could name, I know it's completely um, unfair, but if we could name five main leaders, main figures who are leading the revolution, who are, are we at this point, 1917? Okay, so it depends again, like what part of 1917? So, you know, in Let's February... Say, I'm, I'm, I'm talking more about closer, yeah, February, like, the February, yeah. yeah. So in February, I mean, Kerensky is incredibly important. And what's interesting about Kerensky, he's the only person who is in both the Petrograd Soviet and the provisional government. Mm -hmm. So he's very powerful between February and October. Uh, Lenin comes back. So Lenin comes back in April, right? So there's the April thesis and Lenin's the one who says we're not cooperating with uh, the provisional government. Um, Trotsky, obviously, because Trotsky is going to come in and organize the Red Army after October. Um, Zinoviev and Kamenev, I'd probably name mm -hmm. as, as two more, because they are, they are against October. They're against the idea of any kind of coup. They think that the country's not ready, mm -hmm. and they, in fact, leak plans to the press, and they are... Lenin has them pushed out of the party. They come back in. Okay. But so what's interesting about Lenin, uh, Zinoviev and Kamenev is that they show you the degree to which the Bolsheviks, as disciplined as they want to be, and maybe more disciplined than others, there's divisions among them as well. Um, and what was the main idea? So we have like, let's say you, and that's great. Actually, you, you, you named five people and two were more on opposing side. Mm -hmm. I'm interested. What was the idea while pushing the revolution, right? What was in their mind? Were they considering themselves as uh, someone who bring Russia to uh, a greater place in a, in a geopolitical overall world? Right. Or were they like, oh, we're going uh, to release all the, uh, the peasants and we'll, uh, uh, we're kind of, we're more going to lift them up, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of like, yes, you said, uh, consciousness and stuff. Right. What, was their, what was the motivation to doing that? Uh, again, a really good question. And again, I don't think that there is, I think the Bolsheviks are more united than other groups simply because that's part of their identity, like discipline and a united front. And even though like there's a, there's some splintering between, uh, 1917 and 1921 and 1921 Lenin's bans factions, right? He's like, we can argue behind closed doors, but we can never not present a united front, right? Post-1921. But it's so in a sense of what do people, what are the Bolsheviks thinking about the future of Russia? Again, I don't think it's a united vision. I think there's a commitment to revolution. There's a commitment to Leninism, right? To Lenin's view of this disciplined vanguard. Um, I think many of them were still internationalists. Many of them believed that if there wasn't an international revolution, then the Russian revolution would fail, hmm. right? So there's this sense too that, and it's, it's slow in coming, Uh, probably you see it most in Lenin and Stalin's the one who develops the idea of socialism in one country. And that's where he ends. I mean, he always he has conflict with Trotsky right from the Civil War, because Trotsky is just like, get this guy off my battlefield. You know, like he's just mm -hmm. not doing what I tell him to do. He's not cooperating with czarist military officials. And Stalin's like, I'm not going to cooperate with them. And Trotsky's like, you have to. They're the ones who know military strategy, right? So all right from the beginning, both Lenin and Trotsky are pretty pragmatic about like, how they're actually militarily going to make these changes. Okay. Um, but uh, in terms of even visions of revolution, I think a lot of Bolsheviks would have, have had serious doubts about the future of socialism without an international re revolution. Mm -hmm. So what's their goal? I mean, I think their goal at, at base was this kind of 
communist utopia, right? This egalitarian future where you didn't need militaries and you didn't need laws and you didn't need states and you didn't need governments, right? And very quickly that becomes clear to everyone that there's no way you can rule a country, which is what they end up doing, without a military and without a state and their bureaucracy takes off. And that's what Trotsky's argument is that Stalin is the incarnation of the bureaucracy. And, and when they realize that. When, so um, Trotsky probably starts thinking that he's, he's exiled in 27. He's kicked out of the party in 27. Uh, he writes about that in the 30s. Uh, so he writes The Revolution Betrayed, where he articulates this, this idea, right? Because as a Marxist, he can't say, like, Trotsky, Stalin just came in as, as an individual and hijacked everything, right? Mm -hmm. As a Marxist, as a Marxist historian, this is about social forces. So for him, when he tries to work out what went wrong, for him, it was that the country becomes bureaucratized and that Stalin is kind of the embodiment of that bureaucracy and this kind of petty bureaucratic mindset. Everything that you described so far sounds to me like a working, not really democratic, but a working political process. You have multiple parties disagreeing, multiple combat for power. Right. Uh, you have uh, people with different views. You, as you outlined, a building of a communism. We have a total goal, but we have we're gonna people think that we can get there through multiple ways. Right. There's a kind of pluralism. Exactly. Yeah. How it all end up with a cult of one person as a and a perception of a Soviet Soviet Russia USSR as this monolith of yeah. a one person of uh, of one idea. And that everything, like that all decisions are made by white person, pretty much. Right. Same as we have right now. <laughs> yes. That's, I think that's a really great, I mean, it's a great question. And I think that the answer, the answer is a really complex one because so much feeds into that. The emergence of the Stalinist system was what we're talking about in, in the Soviet context. Um, I think... I think the Civil War plays a huge role. Um, so Lenin, if you read Lenin's, um, his analysis of the elections to the Constituent Assembly, it's a really interesting piece. And he says, basically, like, well, okay, so we didn't win in absolute numbers. But if you look at the way the voting played out, you look at the major urban centers, we won the majority of worker votes, worker votes, workers are more conscious than peasants. So basically, he doesn't literally say it, but he kind of basically the math boils down to you. So Worker votes, one worker vote is worth lots of peasant votes. So in actual fact, we kind of did win. So we can just shut down the constituent assembly. That's not really equality, though. I'm just No, not at all, right? Yeah, so what like I'm you, saying you is... You have a, well, some citizens who are more equal than others. Exactly, okay. exactly. Okay. And that's a kind of Marxist bias, right? Uh -huh. This is an anti-peasant bias, which is what Lenin had, right? He had a very profound anti-peasant. Yeah. He calls them petty bourgeois vacillators. Okay. It's like we can't trust them. They might be communists. They might be, you know, when one day they might be socialists, the next day they might be liberal, the next day they might be monarchists, who knows, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think, and Lenin basically in that piece also says, we kind of need a civil war because we need to push this population to choose. What do you want, red or white, right? Mm -hmm. And the civil war is going to force people into that really harsh dichotomy to choosing. So as a peasant, you're brutalized by the Red Army, you're brutalized by the White Army, but the White Army might take the land back. So who do you support ultimately, mm -hmm. even if you reluctantly support them because they have brutalized you, right? And it's, that's the course of the Civil War is just brutality on all sides, 
you know, and once again, it's the population that suffers and the population that pays, yeah, yeah. right? But Lenin wanted this choice to be very, like, clear cut. And so then also during the course of the Civil War, there is dissent within the party itself. And so within the party, you have people like Alexander Kolontai and Mikhail Tomsky who say to Lenin, they're like, this is not socialism. And they create the workers' opposition. And they're like, you are, you're exploiting the workers. Mm -hmm. Like, we, we believed in a workers' revolution. We believed in liberating the workers. And now you are punishing them for absenteeism. You know, you're, there's all this discipline in the factories. What's going on? And what happened to, you know, all power to the Soviets? And Lenin's like, well, come on, don't be silly, basically, right? He's like, no one can run a country like that, right? So these centralizing tendencies, you see them coming from Lenin already, okay. right? Uh, and then when the Civil War is... So in 1921, Red Kronstadt, so the Kronstadt sailors who had supported the Bolsheviks in October and had supported the Bolsheviks, like, so... They were so pivotal in Bolshevik uh, victory in many ways. They rebel against the Bolsheviks on the island of Kronstadt. And uh, so they call in military. The Red Army goes in and crushes, brutally crushes that rebellion. But it is a real, it's a wake-up call to Lenin because he's like, the ultimate Bolshevik constituency just turned against us. So we have to do something because now we have alienated the population. Mm -hmm. We've pushed them to the edge. So we need to like, and the idea of the new economic policy is this kind of like coming, coming back to some kind of normalcy, right? Where people can now, like they can live their lives, they can farm, they can, you know, so there's, and then, and within the party, there were people who were just like, you can't slaughter like red sailors in Kronstadt, you know? And so in 1921, Lenin does ban factions, right? Mm -hmm. So he may ease up on the economy. He may want to have a kind of, rapprochement with the population, but he says to the Bolshevik party, this is centralized, right? Democratic centralism, right? We debate amongst ourselves, but we agree, you know? Okay. And so there's already that tendency within the party. How does it get to the point, as you say, of, as a cult of personality? Uh, you know, Lenin, there's an assassination attempt in 1918, right? So Lenin's badly injured. He has a series of strokes. By 1922, 23, he's fairly incapacitated. The person who's in charge of medical care is Stalin. Mm -hmm. uh, Stalin keeps trying to keep information away from Lenin, has a massive conflict with, with uh, Lenin's wife, with Krupskaya, because Krupskaya is bringing Lenin information. Lenin is angry with Stalin over a whole series of issues. In particular, Stalin crushes the Georgian Mensheviks, and Lenin accuses Stalin of uh, great Russian chauvinism, right? Mm -hmm. So Lenin still, right? Like, Lenin still, you know, Lenin gave, he made a wager, right, with sort of national revolutions across Russia, believing that national identity will be superseded by worker identity, but in the interim, encourage national revolutions because they're going to support a revolutionary cause more broadly. But, um, you know, so he and Stalin are not getting, getting along in these years. After Lenin dies, Stalin almost immediately goes about building a cult of Lenin. Right. Mm. So this is Stalin's tactic. It's too early to build a cult of Stalin. Right. But he builds a cult of Lenin, even putting Lenin in the mausoleum. Like, it's amazing that Lenin's just not spinning, you know, the entire time, because like, that's the last yeah. thing he would have wanted was his body on view for the whole country. Like, like an Orthodox um, relic. Yeah. Right. So uh, where does this. Um, And he's doing that to centralize, to build a certain cult, because. At this point, 
I, was it a general consensus at this point that you need a centralized government to kind of lead the country forward? That's a really good question as well. I mean, I think that there was already the custom within the party, although Lenin never wanted to say, I am the party's leader. He thought of himself as a party's leader, and they all thought of him as the party's leader, right? But they never agreed on that? They, That's what you're saying? They, they, it, was, I don't, it was never explicit, right? Okay. It was implicit. That, okay. Right? But um, for Stalin, he carves out that role of himself as the party leader and pretty quickly starts to isolate and to eliminate opposition. I mean, not that, that there wasn't a tradition of that already, because by immediately after October, the Lenin is quite happy to have um, leftist oppositionists, you know, arrested, exiled, or whatever. So it's not like this is just springs fully formed from Stalin's head that Stalin's the totalitarian. It's a continuation. It's, it's more... It, it's more intense under Stalin. But you would say that Lenin kind of, he, he's, he built it, let's say. He set a trajectory. And then when Stalin came, he just accelerated the trajectory that he was already established. Is that fair? I think that, that all of the different threads were there and Stalin picked up the totalitarian thread in a sense. So pa Stalin picked up the more, I don't like the word totalitarian, authoritarian thread, let's say. A lot of uh, that what we what we hear right now in, in general media is that if if you go if you go to very extreme left, which that's what it sounded like, right? So, but for everything that you're describing, it's a kind of a working political system. But if you take to if you take the socialism to the very left, it will always be totalitarian, or that you don't like. It's autocratic, <laughs> more autocratic. Is that is that fair? Is, I'm just trying to I know it, I... It, because I'm trying to understand. Was there any other way? Right. Right. And, and that's also a really good question. I mean, this is a central debate in the historiography, right? And I don't want to sound like I'm in a camp that I'm not in, in terms of the historiography, but uh, were there alternatives? I mean, this was the big, uh, so in the 60s and 70s, so if we talk about historiography, right, this is more, more traditional historiography, and it's in the early stages, but to the present day, there are people who see it this way, that Marxism Marxism equals Leninism equals Stalinism equals communism, all the same thing, right? One line, one continuous development, as you say, that this is no doubt it's going to lead to authoritarianism, yes. right? Then there's another view that was like, uh, so now like Moshe Lewin and Stephen Cohen in their writings in the 70s, 80s, 68, Moshe Lewin's first book, their uh, argument was that, no, this is not the case at all, that um, Leninism is different from communism and Stalinism is different from Leninism and that Stalin is the aberration here, that there were alternatives. And for Stephen Cohen, Bukharin was the big alternative. So he sees Bukharin as the champion of NEP and that if you had pushed the new economic policy and continued to develop the new economic policy and what Bukharin says was we need to ride the peasant nag into socialism, mm -hmm. right? And, and Cohen is like, yeah, Bukharin was a serious, a viable alternative. Right. And, and he represented in terms of a general, well, what did he represent in terms of direction? Right. In terms of direction, he would have represented probably socialism with a human face. Right. And that's. And we, so socialism that without the violence of Stalinism, right? So without the purges, perhaps 
right? Without like that level of arrest. And, and, and again, it's what if history though? Like we have no idea. Moisha Lewin had a chapter uh, in Lenin's last struggle. His last chapter is what if Lenin had lived? So mm-hmm. if like he does create what this if, whole, yeah. yeah, this whole what if scenario. Uh, Lenin doesn't live, right? Uh, Bukharin, you know, so Stephen Kotkin comes along in the 90s and he makes the argument, uh, his book is called Magnetic Mountain, Stalinism as a Civilization. And he argues that every civilization is born in uh, violence. So Stalinism is no different, that Stalinism creates this new communist civilization. And you keep saying, well, what is it, right? What is this communist civilization? So if you push Kotkin to the wall, he's just not capitalism. Not capitalism. Right. Everything else? That... That's, that's what he said. Not okay. capitalism. Okay. Okay. Right? Do I buy uh, it? Yeah, I just... <laughs> a bit broad, that's what I would say. I don't know. It's yeah. like there's so many... Like, not so many alternatives, but... Well, it's completely stripped down, right? Yes, it's exactly. sort of like, like it's, he's right against the wall, and the only thing he can say for sure is not capitalism. Right. So in a way, that's kind of a response, though, to someone like Cohen, because it was like, if we continued to push NEP, the new economic policy, it would have ended up looking like capitalism. And that was not an option for these guys. Uh, if, if you read more in, on an economy and what Soviets did, uh, a lot of was, um, I believe, was class enemy, right? That mm-hmm. was a big idea of everything that they did. So everyone who occupied somewhat a prestige high high management kind of CEO, CFOs levels of the uh, companies and little businesses were basically kicked out, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, they were like, probably you were a bourgeois, you can't be a part of a new, a new man that we are kind of building. The question that I have here is that if you kick all these people out, who will be on their, who will be instead of them? So you're talking about Lenin in the 20s, basically, right? Correct, so correct. Lenin trying, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm... Yeah, so that is the, see, that's the, the issue, right? So Lenin, in terms of the new economic policy, right, what do we need to do? We, the Civil War has ripped the country apart, right? We've almost vanquished our enemies. We've sort of militarily vanquished our enemies, although we have peasant uh, resistance, green revolution going on until 1924. We're still trying to, like, deal with peasant unrest, right? And um, so in terms of, but the new economic policy is like, okay, what can we do to, to get people on side and to let people sort of live their lives again, right? So let's give up on sort of persecuting exactly small-scale entrepreneurs. So somebody that has a bakery and has two employees or a family, right? And they're just selling bread. Um, let, let them do it because we need it, right? We need food to be distributed. And then you have like the net man, right? So these were small traders who would just literally carry with them uh, and start circulating goods around the country, right? So this is capitalism on a very small scale, mm-hmm. right? So they do allow that. And you're right, though, by like 1926, 27, they start to really tax those people. They really start to, you know, um, Bukharin says, enrich yourselves to the peasants, right? And Stalin's like, what? What are you telling them? You know, but by 26, they're taxing those uh, so-called wealthy peasants very, very hard, right? So you're right. They're trying to push them out. Who's going to take over? So theoretically, what's going to take over is socialism, right? As a, so, as a, as a system? Yeah. Yeah. So that you're not going to have those petty bourgeois capitalist speculators who accumulate wealth. We don't like that, 
right? Okay. So, I mean, that's the sort of... So there's tension right from the beginning, though. There are Bolsheviks who don't like the new economic policy. Like, for them, this is a very temporary, and Lenin says, too, temporary retreat. But that temporary retreat, yeah. for some Bolsheviks, could be 25 years. Exactly. Right? Exactly. But for others, like Stalin, he was just like, right from the beginning, he's like, I'm not cooperating with czarist officers. I'm not making deals with speculators, you know? That there are parts of the party that are already hostile to this idea. Then you also get workers through the 1920s who are like, well, the peasants are holding us to ransom. There's a market outside of town and they're charging three times more than the state store, but there's nothing in the state store. So what's going on? So there's hostility toward the peasantry on the part of the workers, hostility toward the peasantry on the part of people within the party, right? So there are all of these tensions against, um, you know, these petty traders or whatever, we, peasants who are enriching themselves. It's on such a small scale that it's actually kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of awful, right, to think about it, because to think about who ends up getting persecuted under these grounds. Yeah. But I think that the motivation for the persecution is that we need to make a transition to socialism. Uh, new economic policy is a sellout to capitalism, and we need to do it quickly, because, I mean, Stalin is like, there will be a war. Like, Stalin is like, this country is not prepared for a war. There will be a war. The only way we can prepare for war is force the peasants onto collective farms, emphasize heavy industry, industrialize the country, and the population has to Do you think it was a, 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 a general, when it's, it, it was a general, uh, a general thought that there will be a war, or was it more a power grab? It's like, well, there will be a war, so let's do the way I say, because as you already uh, pointed out before, we, he was all about centralized government, totalitarian cult. Let's follow me. I know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Let's go here. And then it's like a war. And some, like if we draw a parallel right now with uh, what's currently happening in the, in the, in the world, it's, it's a big thing. Like even right now in Russia is that, oh, the U.S. is right there. We have to follow me because yeah. if you don't follow me, there's U.S. and war is happening. So I'm your only leader. Yep. Seems very similar. Yeah, and I think in 1927, there is what they call the war scare. And so there is this, due to a series of, of international events, uh, events in China, events in Britain, uh, there is this war scare and people start to like to hoard goods and it crosses the country. And then that also is used to the advantage of the centralizers, someone like Stalin and those who supported him. They use the war scare They start to say, ah, oh, see, we have saboteurs in our midst. There are foreign engineers here. There, you know, and then the sort of Shakti trial takes place. So the first kind of tryout of show trials starts to take place. 1927, 28, it's early, right? Yeah, yeah. So all of these tendencies are already there. And these tendencies that are going to play themselves out in the mass arrests in 37, 38. But there's also through the 1930s, well, even starting earlier, you see it in the, in the late 20s. There are all these sort of concerns that, oh, the party has been like infiltrated by people who aren't conscious and we need to check party documents and there's problems of abuse and drunkenness. And so there's all this internal suspicion, right, that I think becomes part of this general system of fear and violence. Was it a paranoia you know? or was it like it's or was it a, a, a night? a tool to eradicate the class that we didn't like or everyone yeah. who disagree with us. Well, yeah, exactly. That's the thing too, right? Like, so you get this, this, we have to eliminate the kulaks as a class, right? What does that mean? It means absolutely, I mean, well, it means some, it means violence because basically who is a kulak, the, the definition becomes so elastic that it's anyone who opposes collectivization as a kulak, right? And then we have our justification to arrest them and brutalize them, imprison them, 
Some people are shot, not that many of them, but if you were arrested as a kulak in 1930-31, you would chances, good chance that you were rearrested in 37, mm -hmm. you know, and then the consequences were even more dire, right? So you may have served some prison time and come out during, after collectivization. And it was um, all for the idea of what? That's one. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, yeah, the thing is, it's so tragic, right? It is, and it is. It's, it's so it's... tragic. And what, what was it for? I do think that there were still true believers, right? There were in, in a communist future, in an egalitarian future. And that we have to just push right now and right. kind of, let's kind of hold on and we just sacrifice. We sacrifice. We, yeah. And then, and there's lots of people too. There were people who were just people who took advantage of it, right? So the volunteers who went out to collectivize, right? Some of them would go into a village and they would just start to cry. They're like, I can't do this, right? And they would identify with the people around them. They would try and soften the process. Others were like just thugs, right? They would go into a village and they would treat people and they would steal and they would rape. And, you know, so a lot of it has to do with the individual in an individual moment, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the regime does send these messages of overachieve, overcollectivize, right? And it's better to overachieve than to, to underachieve, right? And so at the, they, the regime creates the circumstances where this kind of violence can occur. So I'm certainly not saying that the regime is blameless in any way. And they make no attempts until it suits their purpose to roll back the violence. And that's when Stalin says, oh, comrade, do you become dizzy with success, right? Mm -hmm. And in that, that is a very, very... Um, it's a very deliberate move because what it does is it redirects anger away from the state, away from the top, Stalin, and says, look, we're so sorry. Like the local officials, just like the local gentry were, they violated your rights. I didn't want them to. They were behaving in an illegal and way. And was that because a combination of the bringing pretty much the worst in people and then the regime that was built? Was it the part of people who built it or was it a part of a... Uh, the ideology that dominated uh, the, the overall, was it set in, in the, into the, uh, the ideology that was brought, the socialism? Is it part of the socialism or is it just like people built it in the wrong way, let's say? Right. I don't think it's part of socialism. Like, I don't think it's an inherent part of left thinking at all. I think, and I think that that's kind of a weapon that's used against the left a lot. But I think, I mean, I think what it is, is circumstance. I mean, it's, it's sort of, where the country was, where they wanted the country to be, and the fact that they were willing to do it in a very violent way. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is what, what distinguished the Bolsheviks from some other groups, right, was their willingness to, to use violence. And not that the, but the provisional government used violence too, right? Like, mm -hmm. in some ways, and so did the Tsarist regime, right? So it's, this, is, this is a massive country. Your biggest resources are your peasants, right? Are, are, you know, grain, wheat, and how do you extract those resources? The Tsarist regime used violence. The provisional governments used violence. The Bolsheviks used violence. Scales, though. Um. Well, certainly collectivization, yeah, is a completely different scale, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is a sense too of trying to, you know, theoretically change the way people think and live. Yeah. In yeah. actual fact, they don't, I think, change the way people they, think they, and live. No? I don't think so. But do you think it's even possible? The idea, that's what always right. drove me completely like crazy, to be honest, is that yeah. the idea that you can change a mindset of a 50-year-old 
man or woman. Right. I can't change my dad's idea about education. Right. And here you're talking about the way you're going to live. I agree. And I don't think that you should ever try to change someone's mind at the point of again. Right. Because mm -hmm. that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if you resist, then I'm going to use violence against you. And that's just like because it's an extreme and it's an extreme. Uh, I'm just, is it a, a human thing? Is it a personality thing that people who got into or is it more an umbrella term we're talking about here? It's, that's such a difficult question to answer. I mean, I think about yeah. it all the time as well. Yeah. Right. Like it drives me crazy, too. Like, why does this happen? Right. Why does extreme violence happen? I do think. And it was so interesting, like to, I've taught for three years in the U.S. and I had taught in Canada before then. My Canadian students, when you make the argument, you know, that you talk about something, you know, like you look at Nazi Germany, right? And we're very sympathetic to Christopher Browning's argument, ordinary men, right? Anybody is capable, almost anybody is capable, like 2% of people will say no, right at the beginning to be like, no, you can't make me do this. Most people, though, can be coerced or pushed or cajoled or shamed into behaving in a certain, in, in a very extreme way and wow, in a violent right. way. Yeah. Um, and they might regret it after they might be ashamed of it at the time, but it depends on the situation that they're in. So like soldiers who create, you know, commit atrocities, right? It's the situation that does it. And my Canadian students are very sympathetic to that argument. My American students were like, It shocked me because they were like, absolutely not. Americans could never do things like that. And I'm like, you guys, you have, right? You know, let's take some examples from Vietnam. And they're just like, no, 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 that's just a complete anomaly, you know? And that I thought was very revealing. Like to be convinced that you could not behave in this way is more dangerous in One some set. ways. Yeah. And I think that pretty, most people, unfortunately, in the right circumstances and with the right manipulation, can behave violently so right now from in my bubble that i live informational bubble that i live in an idea of a um an idea of a socialism kind of coming back when oh, i heard i saw that during uh, even the u.s uh, elections in 2016 it was a lot of not we're not talking about new consciousness you are oppressed But I still hear that. I hear a lot of, not oppressed by the government necessarily, oppressed by the capitalist greed, oppressed by corporations. Every second comment on Facebook I read is, oh, those corporates. Right. Uh, why do you... So like the Occupy movement, things exactly, like that, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly like that. Do you, do you see that? Is that happening? Is it, and why is that happening? Why? Like, I understand why people, for example, in Russia... Uh, in 1915 would be against and would come up with this, come to this idea because, hey, we really, we have monarchy, like we have tsars and, right. and, and as you said yourself, consciousness, you are oppressed. Is it the same idea that we are oppressed right now? That's what driving the kind of rise back? Interesting question. Yeah. And it's funny because like as a historian, I'm always very tentative to like weigh in on contemporary, yeah. on the yeah. contemporary issues. I like to wait like several decades for the dust to settle and collect my mm. sources and then decide, uh, which is probably not necessarily a, a great thing. But um, and, and it's interesting, too, because I just taught a fourth year seminar on um, the Russian Revolution 100 years later. So looking at all this material that came out in 2017 looking back at 1917 
And so the last week that we did was looking at um, three articles in the South Atlantic Quarterly from 2017 uh, that precisely wrestle with this issue. So these are left-thinking individuals who want to salvage the memory of October, right? Mm -hmm. And to sort of scrub the image of socialism to be exactly, as you say, relevant to the current situation, mm -hmm. right? Um, it, it all makes me nervous, right? Because I think that, that the kind of history that I'm interested in is, is, is a lot more to do with like how individuals experience whatever is sort of coming at them, right? So my, my first book is about the countryside in the 1920s and looking at how the state perceives an issue versus how the peasantry perceive the same issue and how they just cannot, they're not never going to meet in terms of even understanding time, mm -hmm. right? That their concepts of time are completely different, right? And that there's just, this is like an irreparable, like a, it's kind of, you can't fill this gap, right? So that's kind of what I'm interested in. So I'm always nervous about the people who were like, yes, you know, we can create this international socialist movement based on, and I'm like, well, how soon before you do pick up the gun, right? On each side. At the same time, I'm very, uh, I don't like uh, some of the thinkers who are like, oh, you think the problem is neo-fascism? It's neo-Bolshevism. Those guys are the evil ones. And that, I, those ideological battles are just, I think that they're obscuring the reality. But don't you think that people who say you think neo-Nazis, uh, like stuff like that, yeah. is a problem? Is because we got a pretty good, like, uh, vaccine shot from the far right ideology, from a, like from all the concentration camps and all the literature we have. That's what happens if you push it to very far right. Right. But when it comes to far left, we didn't. We didn't really get it here like not so many i'm not sure how many people in this room know about gulags right or how do you think that might be the problem just because we just don't know and yeah. people who say something like that it's like oh i'm aware that you know about nazis right but i'm not sure aware if you know what happened when Stalin was power right i mean i think you're right that people know more in general about the holocaust than they do about stalinism at the same time, you may be overestimating how much people know about the Holocaust even, mm. right? Because if we look at events in the U.S., right, that you have, or even look in Russia, right? Like when you have Neo, like you have people doing the Nazi salute in Russia and you're just like, your grandfather died at the hands of the Nazis. Like, how can you do this? And a lot of it has to do with not knowing, right? So I, and yeah, that's one of the things that worry me, right? That people aren't necessarily thinking through people are just reacting both on the left and the right mm -hmm. you know um you know are we're talking about i think you sort of suggested that there's people who are saying oh i'm oppressed you know the corporates and you're like oh come on you're like yeah, pretty good exactly right but i don't think i mean those aren't the people i'm so worried about you know no? i think that no i think that who are you worried about them? i'm worried more about people who live on the edge of subsistence and who are the first ones that climate change and they are already being ravaged by climate change right uh -huh. so i'm worried much more about like mass poor populations looking at countries like india right looking at places in africa where there is intense somewhere like yemen right where there is intense suffering already and that mm -hmm. suffering's just going to intensify and as that suffering intensifies, we're just going to circle the wagons and protect ourselves. And I kind of worry about the violence that that might. More than. Portent. Yeah. Here, you, you think it's more like a, uh, uh, in, in this country, you think, despite 
what some people say and to like bless them for example despite how many times jordan peterson tells us that they're coming after you think it's more noise than the actual reality absolutely i also think we should be quite willing to give up some of what we have we have too much mm -hmm. right and that's what we should be telling people not like oh build walls and protect yourselves it's like no drop the walls and help other people mm -hmm. right because that's the only way we're going to fix this if it's probably too late i don't think we're going to but it would go to pieces that's it no yeah we're just like yeah going down oh, lovely yeah. lovely that's it that's, 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 should we end on that note yeah i think i think we should <laughs>